Glitch HQ on Riverside Avenue and Shaken, not stirred. Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Martha McGarry, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, and I make nice games too. For this episode, our topics are Rumble and video game installations. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. Um. Explain yourself, sir. <laughs> what? That, that accent. Oh. <laughs> it was so brilliant. Was it? <laughs> I mean, that's right. Uh, I don't know. I was, you know, 007. I was just yeah. being uh, smooth. Yeah. In there, like swimwear. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how they describe that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's it's Wednesday here. It's Wednesday, my dude. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all a little loopy, I think. This isn't when we normally would record an episode, uh, because scheduling and a whole bunch of other stuff. Calendar happened. math, calendar math. Calendar math has foiled it's us the, yet again. It's the best content that you love to hear. <laughs> and it's not just Wednesday, uh, dear listener. It's nighttime. Yes. <laughs> it's Which late. is not normal for us either. It's late. I'm a morning person. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you can skip this one. <laughs> If you want. Don't tell them that. I mean. <laughs> it's funny because we used to record episodes on Wednesdays. We're just way out of the groove on this because we've, yeah. we we haven't done it in years. Yeah. Are I'd you, like to think. Are you saying there's no excuse for our behavior? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Ah, uh, last weekend. No. When we recorded this would have been the weekend before. Now. Be two weeks ago from yes, when you hear this. Right. 2D Con happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and Mark were showing off games. How did it go? I want to know because I was texted you and was like, oh, yeah, something, something episode schedule. Uh, <laughs> you guys, how did 2DCon go? And you're like, oh, we're still here. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, it was all weekend. It started on Friday at like one, I think. And then we- I mean, you think, but who's to say? Yeah, we don't know. It was a there long- was some confusion. It was a hard time. <laughs> yeah, um, it started sometime on Friday and then it went until Sunday. Yeah, like it all. I like. I think it always does that, but it felt like it felt longer than in past years. I think. I think the hours were a little longer yeah. for the three days, but also the space that we were in mm-hmm. was actually open twenty four hours a day. Yeah, and yeah. so it was a little, it was a little unusual because the people who were like doing the other things in the room, they had uh, PCs and consoles and arcade games set up and a VR section for people to play. Um, a tabletop arena. It was just a large space with lots of stuff. It was really cool, actually. Yeah. The way they organized it a little yeah. differently and a little bit more communal than in years past. But ah, the different nice. events and different uh, things, especially things that required attendi- attendance, um, like the VR section, whatever, they had di- had different schedules. Right. And, um, and so there was some... Like, people would walk by, not really caring what the schedule was. Just like, I'm here. Is this here? I'll do it. I don't care yeah. that it closed half an hour ago. Yeah. And so, and, you know, I didn't, I never wanted to be, like, the bad cop. To be like, no, no, I need to tear down. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to play the game. Yeah. <laughs> so, it was it was just kind of, it was a little rough. Um, and, uh, but it, but a lot about it is good compared to how it used to go. Yeah. So, I, I it's think a good was, sign. Um, it was bigger than last year. That's mm-hmm. for sure. It was in a new venue, like, like Mark was saying. Yep. Um, and so, like. Uh, it didn't feel bigger than it was last than last year, but like because there was space, more space, there was yeah. more space, so it didn't feel bigger. But I know it was bigger. Yeah, um, yeah, and, which means it can grow. Yeah, um, they have a contract with this hotel for the next couple of years, mm-hmm. so it'll be back 
for the next few years. So they've, it's secure, um, which is pretty cool. It's in downtown Minneapolis, which is I can bike there. Yeah. Which is cool. So I'm happy about that because the driving all the way out to whatever sub- suburb it was previous <laughs> wasn't, it wasn't awesome. Right, right, right. Yeah. Bringing um, all your stuff over there. Yeah. So but cool. also like people travel. Um, it's yeah. a small convention, but people still travel from throughout the Midwest or yeah. the country to, to come to it. So, um, you know, in more of a central location means they can experience more of our fair cities. So yeah. It's been good attendance. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really good. Yeah, and I guess as usual, uh, 2DCon happened, and I, I didn't get to experience much of it. Uh, right, you were you were programming because we were all. You yeah, were not, I, I was actually. I was working on Fingeance while we were there. Because uh, no, I, no, I mean you were programming. You were the event programming, like oh, well, yeah. but yes, you were. You did have your laptop <laughs> out, banging away in yes. Visual Studio. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, oftentimes when I show off Fingeance, uh, I will like see a lot of things that I notice are bad, and they're like. Like there's small things that I can fix really quickly, and so I will be making builds throughout my time working on a thing, and I made. Well, it, it doesn't go exactly like that. It goes yeah. like you see a thing, and then you go shoot. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty accurate. And then you scramble behind the TV, and you're like, no, "I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna build." Yeah, <laughs> maybe not that. I'm kind of angry about it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but like it's it's nice because it makes me feel productive throughout the weekend. Yeah, um, that's good. I can't totally do that. Sure. I, I really wish I could because you're right it makes you feel like you're actually really using the time well. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to be kind of eagle-eyed on the booth and I want to like answer questions. And I also want to do a lot of observation. Yeah. So I'm taking notes constantly. And to be fair, that's probably a better way of doing it. <laughs> well, I, I yeah. suppose it depends on where I you're mean, at. I mean, there's almost no, you can do, whatever you do is productive to, yeah. to the thing you're doing. Yeah. But it, it tends to, I it, it drains me very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's the thing about showing your games off is it's just, it's always draining. Yeah. Because you kind of have to be on. Uh-huh. Um, even when like like the way I show Fingeance is not great because I oftentimes just like sit the game there and let let people play it and I don't talk to them yeah. unless they have questions or like they just started and I'll introduce the game to them. Mm-hmm. Um, like even that though is still like it feels like a lot because you're kind of like you kind of have to constantly introduce yourself to new people all the time. Um, so like it's it's an adjustment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, it can be draining. So so how did Fingeance show? Uh, I feel like it did fine. There mm-hmm. were like rewards and stuff. I don't know if Fingeance won anything because we weren't there to collect it. <laughs> we had to actually unload. So I yeah, don't know so I don't know. I know some games won some things. I think so. They had cool. little uh, ballots you could vote on your favorite in a bunch of different categories. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know who won. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I'm sure the people who won. We're all winners, are, really. We're all winners. Yeah, we got to go to TVCon. <laughs> and there's there was some new. So you know, it's a it's a um, every year a couple games uh, come in and come out. But there are many repeat. Like Vengeance has been at it for the last yeah. four years. Yep, yep. Um, that I mean, that may, it's, that's yeah, exciting, it's right? cool but, because like actually, we didn't get to go last year because we were at Gen Con that year. Oh, oh, that's right. But um, um, there are some. There's a couple of attendants who like make it their goal to play Vengeance every year because they remember it. Yeah, and it's the place to play it, right? Yeah, it's not so out yet. It was, yeah, I think they're vendors. I think they sell stuff there. Oh, um, okay, interesting. Yeah, so like it was really neat to see them again and see them play the game. They're yeah. like, oh, we're really sad that it wasn't there last year, but we're really excited it's here this year. <laughs> Uh, so I was, I was, that was really nice. That's cool. Mm-hmm. I know there's, you know, there's these categories of bugs and fingeons yeah. and, uh, we saw them, but much less than usual. Yay. So it's <laughs> real measurable progress. It's still the same bug that will show up for the rest of my life. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, that's game dev. Uh huh. That's how it is sometimes. Uh, we just actually, this is the first time I've actually sh- uh, shown with detachable at an event of this scale. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things I decided when we started working on it was like, I'm just going to like hunker down and make it. Yeah. Right. That was the main thing. Now I showed off at GlitchCon uh, last year and mm-hmm. that was fun. Um, but that was a much uh, easier, I had a much easier time of it. It was one night. It was yeah. like, just a couple hours. Yeah. Um, 
But um, this is the first time I really showed it off in a setting that I'm used to showing off Metro Nexus in years past. Yeah. And so um, I, I kind of knew what to deal with, but a lot of it was actually kind of new because I, uh, I've i done playtests here at Glitch a lot for Widget Satchel, but I haven't been in selling mode of like explaining, here's what the game is and big smiley face and kind of trying to make a good impression. And yeah. so that was kind of a... a um, um, like, oh, yeah, that's how that goes. Like, I'd forgotten. I hadn't done it in a while. Right, right. Um, but what was cool is that um, people sat down and played the game for like an hour. Yeah. Um, and somebody somebody turned to me and was like, this is the longest game I've ever played. The <laughs> uh, uh, longest indie game I've ever played. Wow. And, and I was like, well, that's not true. <laughs> or you haven't played a lot of indie games. Yeah. But also, it made, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a, um, a, sh- a demo environment like that, yeah. it, it was very long. Right, right. Um, most people played for three minutes. 20 minutes or an hour mm. like there was not really they, they kind of hovered in those 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 categories yeah um so that's good because you know there weren't enough bugs to send people away which is nice <laughs> um but also people were interested enough and essentially they just stopped by and then it ate up their hour and yeah. like that's kind of that's that feels good that's cool um but someone was saying just how long it was and i was just like oh no one's ever described it that way so <laughs> thanks <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty great yeah but uh, the a lot of the late game stuff uh in this in the second hour mm-hmm. um you know we haven't been able to get through the play test yeah because you can't just throw people at the end of the game there's so much you need to know going in right and we need to test the sort of progress so it was i was like furiously taking notes for the the few people who like made it all the way to the end of the game yeah like just to say like okay we haven't really play tested this before <laughs> yeah. so suddenly it became a play test mm-hmm. um and so that was that was valuable yeah and i was so I don't. I looked at my notes and I'm like, it was so delirious. I only really understand <laughs> half of them. Um, and Monday it was destroyed. It was so tired, but yeah, like, you know, yeah. net game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, so while we were at 2D Con, Martha was doing something else. What? You, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hope so. You weren't just like sitting on your couch while we're not there. No, I. You were doing other what things. What was I actually doing? I don't know, but I play a lot of Civilization. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> And uh, you didn't yeah, just play Civilization. I know. I didn't just play Civilization. I beat a game of Civilization. Wow. I know. It's very weird for <laughs> me. <laughs> yes. Yay. <laughs> cultural victory. Ah, I was nice. going for a, it was an accidental cultural victory. I was going for a science victory, but I just happened to have so much culture that people were like, you're cool. <laughs> So, you know, it's That's fine. what people are always saying about Martha. Too bullshit. <laughs> Man, every time I've beaten Civilization, it's always been a military victory mm-hmm. because I'm always going for a science victory. <laughs> and then I just have all the, like, it's the game's taking forever and I have all these these uh, armies. People like, kept declaring war on me. I was like, I'm nowhere near you. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that, you sort of get drawn in and then you're just like, all right, fine. Uh, you know, pew, pew. And then you just win. <laughs> And you're like, oh, all right. That's <laughs> oh my goodness. This is, this is the best description of, of a competitive match that Mark has played ever. No, not competitive. This is against the computer. I'm not, oh, okay. I'm not, I'm oh, not yeah, playing no. against humans. You don't play against humans. Oh, Why would you right, yep, do yep, that? No, I would you play a multiplayer game. Never. <laughs> no, you don't play against humans. You take humans to lunch yeah. and be their friend. Ah. You destroy CPU opponents. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> that makes now nah, that makes a lot more sense actually. Yeah, that, <laughs> I was gonna say you're just doing that. You're just nonchalantly winning all these online games. Like, no, wow. <laughs> no, there are people like that, but that is no one would ever describe me that way. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I was. That's why I was shocked. Yeah, uh, but you did it, Martha. You did it. You won a game. Yeah. Well, I think I think because what I usually do if listeners you don't haven't heard about this before is i play civilization really weird i start a new game every time i start playing 
because I only really liked the like exploration part in the beginning part of the game where there's all the possibilities and no one has built one of your wonders that you were about to build yet. And you know, everything's happy go lucky. Mm -hmm. You're defeating a bunch of barbarians and you're like making the first wonders and you learn to ride horses and it's great. Um, But now I got it on the switch and it's totally changed my gameplay because I can play a little like those computer times where when I played on the PC were mega long like binges where I'd play like six hours at once. Sure, yeah. And then I'd be like, well, I'm done with this. And by the next the next time I'd play, I'd be like, I don't remember where I was. This takes lots of strategy. I'm just gonna start over. But with the switch, you can play for like, you know, 10 minutes and then turn it off. And then the next time you have like 10 minutes, you can play. You can play a, a turn or whatever. And then it turns into four hours, but you don't notice <laughs> and, as much because like you can walk around with it and put it down and be like, oh, where was, you know, like it's way easier to pick back up again and just casually play. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's what I've been doing. It's very interesting how different venues make you play the game different ways. You know, I've, I've noticed that too of my habits when I'm playing on Switch versus other games. Like I feel like when I'm playing on Switch, I in- expect myself to play it in 20 minute bursts. Especially since I, when I do it, I tend to play it on um, on the train or something. It takes me 20 minutes to get to work and back. And even when you're not traveling, you mostly play handheld, right? Yeah, actually, yeah, that mm-hmm. is the case. Uh, actually, yeah, the only time I don't is if I'm playing it like with a bunch of people or if I'm playing Smash, which right. is oftentimes with a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, but yeah, most of the games I get, are I intend to play like that in little bursts. So, like, I, I feel you on that. I tend to play docked, so it just feels like any other console to me. Sure. Um, I will play in bed. Uh, handheld yeah or if i you know i don't usually take my switch when i go places i also don't go a lot of places so <laughs> but uh but to me it's more of a dock system so okay. so it doesn't i don't really i don't have those different paradigms that a lot of people do yeah they, it is can be sort of different things to different people mm-hmm. yeah totally mm-hmm. sure. martha your uh struggle with completing a game of civilization uh, at least at this in the clubhouse dates back to our pilot episode Oh yeah, where we talked about it. Um, so is that the unreleased pilot? It might be. We talked about it pretty soon in the start of the show, mm-hmm. but like that's just been that's one of the things I know about you. <laughs> it just well now you have to completely rewrite my priors. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> discuss the show how much we've all changed. Yeah, you've grown as a person. Yeah, <laughs> and as a civilization, apparently. <laughs> Mine's the best. That's what they say culturally. Anyway, yep. yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, last bit um, Widget Satchel is in Japanese we talked about it I think we talked about it a little bit before right yeah we talked about how the Widget Satchel has a Japanese publisher Mm -hmm. it'll be released with some support over there which is very exciting yeah um, because that's definitely not something we could have swung on our own Mm -hmm. Um, but I just got the uh, you put this in the notes because you wanted me to talk about it yeah um, it's cool I I just got the first draft of their uh, translation uh, back and I implemented and testing out do all the localization features I worked uh, I put in work they do. Uh, I took some screenshots and shared them in the community just because it's like exciting. Yeah. To, like see the the thing that I found interesting was like when you when you per, you know you do your work it's real right you put it in front of people it's real at two D con when I just overheard someone say widget satchel like as it's a it's a thing that exists in the world now yeah right? when somebody else says it and you didn't tell them it first yeah like there's it's a lot of emotional like a, a attachment to these moments of this sort of like making it feel real and one of them turns out is when you have your game and then all of the text on screen is translated and formatted uh, you know, by without you manually typing it in yourself. Yeah. Like, it feels like it's a real product that has multiple hands and 
like it's just I don't know it's just one of those interesting moments yeah that, like, I thought it was, oddly feels like a real thing now. I thought it was super cool to see that like I don't know it's, yeah. it's just neat to see all this stuff and I didn't understand any of it but like <laughs> I, it wasn't meant for me <laughs> yeah well it's also challenging my sense of aesthetics because mm. one of the things I, I see a lot of when I see um, especially in pixel art games yeah. when I see um, non-Latin characters yeah. um, there, there's a rich tradition of like of typeface art mm. uh, in the western world uh, because we have the capacity for that. Yeah. And for non-Latin fonts, there just isn't that much of a tradition of that. Right. Well, it does exist, um, but very frequently, there, especially in pixel art, there's just aren't enough pixels um, to be... Oh, I see. In pixel art, because I'm like, there's like, you know, Arabic calligraphy and Chinese calligraphy. Oh, yeah. Like that, playing around with type On paper, <laughs> there's in fact much more of a tradition of actual proper fine art when it comes to writing systems for in non-Latin scripts. You're absolutely right about that. It's like a weird thing. Yeah, because it's like the the print stuff is mostly non, like non Latin characters, and the mm -hmm. online stuff is a lot more. Yeah, well, it's it's super interesting about um, even just the creation of fonts. Like there are thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of characters um, that are shared uh, with uh, Japanese, Chinese, and uh, in some part uh, Korean. And um, those character, and then there's a whole separate set for um, traditional Chinese and simplified Chinese. And all of those characters, um, it makes it just impractical to design a font. Yeah. It's just literally impractical. Mm. And so there aren't really that many. And it, oh, it, like, yeah. it is kind of interesting. So you see, you know, people like, oh, there's like Arial and Times New Roman and like the four system fonts you have. Yeah. You know, you'd see them on all the websites. But like in today's uh, era of web fonts, like websites are really expressive and they feel more like desktop publishing and more designery and more and like really have the hand of an artist in it and that that is not come to uh non-latin scripts because of just the enormity of the work and so um a lot of times when i see video games especially ones that have been localized you know they, they, there's like the one font that's available yeah um there's a, there's an open source font that adobe and google worked on together um uh, called uh noto sans that's google's name for it adobe calls it source han and it is um a really incredible work that that makes um, those fonts accessible to to everybody because they're open source, and that's really exciting. That's what I'm using in Widget Satchel, and so. But at the same time, like I couldn't pick my fonts, like, and that was really difficult because the title font in in Widget Satchel has a really peculiar look to it. That's very yeah. a, a strong part of its aesthetic identity, right? And so it challenged my aesthetics to be able to just use one of these fonts and not not pay up for essentially the seven. That are available, which you could purchase. Yeah, like there just aren't that many, and so and you see a lot of this. Uh, I'm, uh, I've been sort of circling this idea, but you 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 see a lot of work that has a lot of these non Latin characters in it, and they sort of sacrifice um, sort of like pure design graphic aesthetic for legibility usability. Um, now you tend to see like title treatments in non Latin fonts, like really be creative and interesting. Yeah, because there's like you know seven okay. to ten characters you right. need to manage. Um, and so, uh, anyway, so it's been challenging because yeah. I'm like, uh, that's, you know, it's just something I can't let go of. And, and so, um, seeing this in there and I'm satisfied with it. Yeah. Like not just that's that, good. I think it looks nice. That's and, good. And like a lot of that comes to things like setting the baseline values for like the way that the Latin script and the non-Latin script go together mm -hmm. because, um, these non-Latin scripts will have, a they'll have, they have Latin, uh, Arabic numerals in them for one. Because those are used internationally. Yeah. Um, and also, there will be times where you don't translate certain proper nouns. You just leave them in Latin script in English. That's common in Japanese in particular. 
And so these things will mix with each other. So these non-Latin fonts will have Latin characters in them, but the Latin characters in the non-Latin fonts tend to be kind of plain and boring. Mm. And you'll see this on websites. If you ever, if you see uh, Japanese websites, you'll see a, a, like just uh, English phrases and they'll kind of just look gross because they're just part of that, that character set. So yeah. I found a way to mix my, the fonts I'm using in English with the, you oh, know, trying to just so that's that it, so cool. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. It's, it can be very technical. And if it's boring to you, then it's just really boring. But if it's all interesting to you, it's incredibly interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, man, there was a conference in Minneapolis this week, like right now that's happening about all about font design. Did I miss that? Oh, you told me about it. And then I, well, I can't go to any of it, but, yeah. uh, apparently today there was a, a, a like workshop on designing Hangul, which are the, the Korean, Korean yeah. syllabary. And oh man, I wanted to go to that, but yeah. I, there's like work that I have to do or something <laughs> right. for money. So and Hangul is, is phonetic, right? Yeah. So it's like 30 characters or something like that. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't remember, but it's yes. some manageable number. Yes. And it has a really, uh, very strong visual style. That I feel like even not knowing the language, you could kind of work with. Yeah. So I've well, the, been... Yeah. The whole workshop apparently was on like what what rules you can break and what can't you break mm -hmm. um, if you don't actually oh, know. Oh, that's important to know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, can I make this line go this way? Or is that like as a stylistic choice or would that like totally break the meaning of uh -huh. it? So yeah. And it we was, both missed it. I know. We both missed it. We are the worst. <laughs> if you went to TypeCon, let us know. Next year? Next See year. If, yeah. Next year. We'll go next year. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for making me talk about it. Yeah, no, I know. It's so that. cool. I'm and interesting. Fired up. Yeah. yeah, that's I knew. The you would screenshots be. <laughs> are so awesome. I actually can't wait to see what uh, the Hangul looks like, what the green uh, text looks like with Satchel. That'll be fun too. Ah, uh, it's gonna be so cool. Yeah. Uh, what was what was that? Get ready to rumble. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that uh, amazing multimedia transition <laughs> uh, brings us to uh, my topic, which is about rumble in games. Yeah. Um, this is one of those just fun foundational things. And I've been working on it and we're just actually trying to get uh, rumble working in it because it can be kind of like you can you can like you can use a hammer or a scalpel in designing it. It's true. Um, it's very true. And uh, I, one of the things uh, when we were putting it together, we decided is when we did the jam version way back when. Yeah. Um, I believe Lane implemented a lot of the original Rumble stuff in Widget Satchel, the jam version. Mm -hmm. And then I think when we started working on it proper, we're like just like you know what, let's leave that alone. We'll get back to it. Yeah. And so, other than turning it down a little bit, we haven't really touched it until the till this very the end of the project here, where it's finally time to go back in and, and do all of it in one kind of pass. Uh, and that's what I've been doing. And uh, now that the game is running on consoles and PC, all these different controllers, uh, it's um, it's I'm glad I waited and did it all at once instead yeah. of just kind of piecing it together. That's, that's um, so I'll talk a little bit about that, but first, just the sort of background. I think a lot of this, the history and trivia is really fascinating. Uh, you know, Rumble as like the force feedback in video games, like it predates the Nintendo 64 Rumble Pack, which I think a lot of people understand is the first, you know, Rumble controller. Um, yeah. You know, certain arcade installation kinds of things would 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 um, uh, experiment with using haptic feedback. Right. Um, uh, flight simulator style arcade games, things like that. Uh, the idea wasn't totally uncommon. Uh, there were joysticks that had uh, PC joysticks that had like rumble components oh, in it. I believe um, they weren't super well supported. Sure. Um, it's so it was kind of an idea that existed, but it was it was one of those like oh it's like a weird side thing that like uh, I you know something has, but it wasn't like it wasn't a mainstream idea until Nintendo brought it to Nintendo sixty four mm -hmm. with the Rumble Pack, which if you don't know 
was this little like thing you uh, snapped into your controller. It was an accessory. Yeah. Um, and it had uh, the, the, the motor in it, and that's all it was. It was pretty simple. But the expansion port on the Nintendo 64 controller was designed to, you know, so that you could have a lot of these crazy ideas that you were add to it. Like Nintendo is famous for adding crazy ideas to its things. Yep. But this seemed like a really cool way to like have a platform for crazy ideas. Yeah, yeah. Right? The Nintendo 64 controller was the most weird thing but it was so cool yeah. because of how weird it was. Yeah. Um, so uh, the the Rumble Pack and the the uh, memory card were the two that most people know. Yeah. There was also an e card reader, I believe. There was a, I had that. And there was a microphone attachment. There was a microphone attachment. There was a Game Boy attachment. You could play Pokemon Stadium and Pokemon Stadium Two with it and bring your own Pokemon into the game, mm-hmm. which was kind of a like it wasn't great because like <laughs> that game already had a bunch of default. Pokemon mm-hmm. of all of them, and they were all like level ninety nine or something. And yeah. Your Pokemon aren't going to be that high, <laughs> so they just kind of got wrecked every time. And I didn't know about some of those things. Uh-huh. The thing that was fascinating to me is I was just assumed it expanded on the abilities of the controller, and so it you know you the game would send the data to, to these these devices. Oh yeah. I didn't realize it would be like full two way communication. I mean, yeah. it makes sense because you need to, you know, the inputs also send information back. Right, right. But I didn't realize how robust a platform it was. Yeah. Because of basically how little it was used, at, you know, in the mainstream. How like, you know. Yeah. But that's, Nintendo always over-engineers some of their things and then you don't use it completely. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was really interesting. Also interesting is that there wasn't an expansion port on the GameCube controller. Yeah. But I they mean, just gave it up and then they had, they had uh, card slots on the system. Right. Yeah. The GameCube was designed as far as I understand, the GameCube was designed really to be like more of a hardcore machine. Yeah. But like they put a bunch of power into it and stuff. Yeah. Instead of like those extra features like but they used to do. They did have the Game Boy attached Game Boy Advanced attachment that you just you it was basically another thing you stuck yeah. on the bottom, yeah. which was pretty great. Mm-hmm. We had yeah. that. Well I think it was Well, just, my cousin had that. It was a, I have that. Yeah, there were still yeah, definitely <laughs> still crazy ideas in the GameCube era. But it was sort of a recognition that what people used that slot for was memory cards and rumble. Yeah. And memory cards didn't need to be controller centric. Mm-hmm. So you could just put them on the system. And uh, rumble you could just build right in. Yeah. Um and so that was, you know, a, a kind of interesting thing. So it was born out of this experiment, right? Um and then uh famously the the analog stick on the Nintendo 64 controller mm-hmm. inspired Sony to stick a pair of analog sticks on its controller and then that's the birth of that style of controller. Right. Um, and a lot of people know the DualShock, right? That's the 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 controller that uh, was not introduced with the PlayStation, came out later, mm-hmm. but it wasn't actually the first revision of that controller. The dual analog controller was the first revision. Oh. It didn't have rumble right away. Oh. Um, uh, that's why DualShock has a brand name. Oh, is because okay. it was the third iteration, so they needed to give it a name, Yeah, uh, which was sort of interesting. Um, and so that introduced uh, two rumble motors in the in the in the the wings of the thing. And I didn't actually get the information on this, but I know this is how these controllers work now. Generally, is that the two motors? You think, oh, great, stereo effects, right? Yeah. But that's not what they're used for. The two motors are different, and so they okay. they have like um they're these eccentric mo- uh, uh, mass motors. So uh, if you think of just a, a like an axle, and then you think of a like a like a wheel, but think of just half the wheel, right? Sure. Okay. And so when you spin it, it's it's off its axis. So that's oh, how rumble works. It's like if you have a misbalance of clothes in your washer and it starts going wobble, 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 That's wobble, a perfect wobble. metaphor. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best way to describe it. Brilliant. Um, and that is, that's just how rumble works. And so the two motors uh, have just different shape, size, masses. 
And so they, because one's one, you're washing sweaters and the other one, yeah. you're washing t-shirts. <laughs> there you go. Because you can't get a lot of, it shakes the whole controller. Yeah. So, um, but I, when I was starting to develop uh, rumble stuff, I, I, a lot of the APIs look at it, left motor, right motor. I'm like, oh, of course. Mm. And I would try to like, oh, I'll pan across. Or if something happens on the left side of the character, it'll be on the left motor. Or yeah. That's not how it works. <laughs> and I was very disappointed. Yeah. Um, but, uh, um, that was, is that why, sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, I'm please. really sorry. But is that why the Nintendo's like the switch controllers were such a big deal? It is one of the reasons. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I'm jumping ahead. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that type of rumble motor that, uh, uh, described as an eccentric rotating mass, um, that is, that is, yeah. <laughs> That's that the name of that. Sorry. I know, right? <laughs> That's amazing. That's the standard rumble all over the place. Yeah. Um, the um, one of the interesting things uh, more recently is the uh, Xbox One controllers have the two standard uh, rumble motors, mm-hmm. but they also have additional rumbles in the triggers. Oh, that's right. And they're yeah. ca- they call them impulse triggers. And I didn't, I don't actually know exactly if they're any different, uh, but they're definitely much more fine in terms of the feel, the sensation they give. Right. And the idea was supposed to be. For things like racing games, like when you you know you you pull down on the on the trigger and it feels like uh, pushing down on the pedal. Oh, really? And then the, it would give you feedback based on how the the, the motor is turning, oh. and like this idea that you, it would give you information. Yeah. That you could then use to know like, oh, I'm taking this turn too tight. I should give it a little more gas. Yeah. Okay. Like you know, or that whatever. Makes sense. Um, I don't know that a lot of racing games bother with that. Yeah, and I was gonna say this seems more like a shooting kind of thing. That's just for like. Feel purposes. Yes, and that uh, kickback kind yeah. of. The uh, people do use it for that. That okay. is the case. I think a lot of AAA games will have a cursory implementation. Lower level games, especially cross platform titles, tend not to do much with it. Okay. Um, and this is, of course, why all uh, exclusive features don't get done in cross platform games because extra work. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's it, it feels almost like a Nintendo idea. There's a little extra thing they added that people didn't totally understand and seemed very specific to a certain type of game. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Xbox One controller uh, has some extra stuff in it. Um, I'm not sure how much access as a developer you have to that stuff on PC. Um, but, you know, on Windows, that controller is a first class piece of hardware. So I wouldn't, I haven't, that's the part I haven't really gone into it yet with which Satchel is, is working with the Xbox One controller okay. and it's extra stuff. Mostly because like, there doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite and people, a lot of people don't even know it, it can do more stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's the thing about Rumble is like, it's, it's a simple idea. It's just, it's a washing machine, right? Yeah. Um, but you can do more interesting things with it. Um, it's just the appetite for it is sort of like, I don't know. And another one of those, of course, is HD Rumble, which yes. is a dumb title for a cool feature. <laughs> um, <laughs> high definition Rumble. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> that's like, that's Nintendo's uh, implementation of Rumble yeah. on the Switch. And this does not the, use... Extensors. The Rumble has so many pixels, though, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this doesn't have the eccentric rotating mass. Yeah. It uses something called a linear resonant actuator. Straight out of Star Trek. And so what this is, is uh, think of a spring mm-hmm. a, uh, on, in, in a channel, and then in the middle of the spring is a, is a mass. Yeah. And there's a, uh, magnetic fields will move it back and forth. Uh, you can change amplitude of, of that. And the HD Rumble has two, I believe, I'm not actually sure exactly how it's built, but it will do two different, has two different frequencies yeah. yep. that, that can be adjusted within the frequency, but they're in these, these ranges, right? Yeah. So ultimately, it's basically a speaker. Yeah, is what it is. It works very similar to a magnetic speaker, just like your, like a boombox has, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the technology is almost identical. Um, in fact, you can actually feed sound files to 
the uh to the the controller and it will play them yeah um and so um that what you can do with that is you can do an incredible amount of interesting uh feel that you have control over amplitude and frequency and if you have the two controllers you can do things like stereo effects um not because you can actually move the the, the thing it's that you can imply motion in the rumble and so it feels like it has a direction mm-hmm. and so you can fool the 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 feel into thinking that it is in a particular part of the controller. Yeah. Um, Nintendo has a great demo for this in the game 1-2 Switch where you you move the uh, the Joy-Con in your hand and it feels like there's these little balls rolling around inside of it. Right. It's an inc- it's really incredible. Yeah. Just like but just like the Xbox's uh, impulse triggers no one really uses it for anything. Yeah, I, you know when I when I developed Treasure Stack I did like try to make Mm-hmm. You know, I did try to make good use of the the product, and there's a lot of things you can do with it. Um, I I think that like I made things like feel really good about it. Like when you make a match in Treasure Stack uh, with a chest, it'll make a little tiny pink sound, yeah, sort of thing. So like each individual chest, you will feel them as they open up, which I thought was really neat. I don't know that people like really liked it or not, but I thought it was cool. Well, so. one of the things you can do, and it's like looks like this is the route you went, is that you yeah. can. You can give it just a little bit of juice, yeah. right? You can have things feel a little different. You can have, um, you know, with with the two motors you have in a in a normal controller, yeah. you can have fine fine rumble and 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 a rough rumble, right? Yeah. So Mass Effect, I think Mass Effect Two, you could uh, made pretty good use of this um, when you did like the mining operations. You'd circle a planet and then you'd get like cues as to how close you were. That's right, and a little bit of what type. Of, it was it was crude, but it was a good use of the limited abilities to do that sort of thing. But HD Rumble gives you so much more, but it's really hard to work with the system because it's really complicated. And I think Nintendo even acknowledges like this is going to be hard for you, so like don't like don't feel bad about only doing a little bit. Yeah. Like, I think that's in their documentation. Yeah. Um, but one of the things you can do is you can you can take you can record sound effects, uh, and then you can actually modify them to work with it, and um, mm-hmm. and. It it can give you a lot. So um, you can also use different libraries of these these like vibration effects. So you can have little like you know tink, or you can have like rumbly kind of rumble sounds for explosions and stuff like that. And so what I've been doing in Widget Satchel is I've been I I, I came with this a system where I have rumble type. So rumble type is just different actions in the game. So this is a, a landing on the ground. This is a thud type, sure, like yeah, that, right, or a UI uh, sound or something yeah. like that all these different types of things in the game. And they're kind of, a lot of them are one-offs, but some of them can be reused. And then I abstract it in the game by saying, when it's time to make the controller rumble, I can feed it uh, amplitude. I can say which motors to use. And then I can also say rumble type. So for the Switch version of the game, it reads that rumble type and will then play that sample. And so you can, I can write sort of a cross-platform API that works with both systems and without having to like write it twice, you know? Um, and it's still really complicated. Yeah. <laughs> like as easy as you want to make it on yourself, but the results are pretty good. Yeah. Um, the, um, if you just feed the normal, like, um, magnitude numbers, uh, to, for a switch controller, it is weird. <laughs> like it feels <laughs> weird. Yeah. I don't know about what experience you had. I, uh, no, I actually, I designed the rumble on the switch first and then moved on to the other side. Okay. So that's like, probably the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, because for me, it was the other way around. I just took the values we had. And just fed it to the switch controllers, and sure. just do. And it's fine for now. I'll yeah. do better. Yeah. But like because of the of how it doesn't have partly because the Joy Cons are small, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the sort of big uh, uh, motors that other controllers do. Right. In order to achieve that kind of effect, you need to have kind of on off on off on off yeah. kind of quality to have it 
seem that way. And you can do that manually by by feeding uh, like an array of, of values, or you can use a sample that does that, but that ebbs and flows. Yeah. And so, but you just by giving it a big number doesn't make it vibrate a lot. It just makes it like it, it, it's really weird. Anyway, <laughs> so it's it's um un, if you're just trying to get your game out the door, you still have to think about it. Yeah. Um, you can't just sort of feed it default values. Yep. Um, and that is something you should think about if you're porting your game to Switch. Um, and hopefully you should be inspired to kind of do something fun with it. Um, and even if that is just a difference between you know a rough a rough kind of rumble and a, a sort of a, a tight vibration, if that's all you do, that's still the the player is going to appreciate that dance. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really cool. So yeah, yeah that's hardware stuff. Um, so let's talk just about design, like oh, yeah. where to put a rumble. We can get real in the nitty gritty here. It's man, it is hard to know because when you're developing, you just want to turn rumble off. Like you don't want right because. Yeah, you don't you want will the keep going through the same thing over and over again, and your controller will constantly be rolling. It'll shake on the, on the table desk, and, and it's, uh, uh, it's just <laughs> like <laughs> there are things you can just quickly test in, like the Unity editor or whatever tool you're using. Yeah, like oh yeah, that jump feels right. But like Rumble is something you do have to just sit down and play the game mm-hmm. to get a real sense for how it works because it's very much this sort of like dimension of immersion. Um, and uh, but basically, just like with things like Screen Shake or um, particle effects. Yeah, there is. It is really easy to overdo it. Yep. <laughs> um, and sometimes the correct answer is not to have anything at all. Mm. One of the things I learned is that um, I have I can do these really subtle sound or um, vibrations on the switch, um, like when Sprocket is um, uh, swatting their hand around. Yeah. Uh, before they get the wrench, it's just like a real light way to just knock stuff around. Um, I can do a really tiny uh, uh, um, audio sample that plays on the switch, and it feels really good. Yeah, but if I have the lowest possible rumble on like an Xbox One controller, mm-hmm. it feels like too much. Yeah, and so I just have it set to zero for those platforms, and that was kind of tough to like actually have different, not just like a different types of things on each platform, but actually different um, things that will rumble or won't. Yeah, um, that was kind of a tough thing to realize that I had to do if I wanted to to play in that neighborhood of the cool stuff I could do uh, with the Switch. I had to give it more. I just separated even further than I thought I would have to. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, uh, don't do a rumble on every jump, I think. Yeah. Like, well, little uh, things like that. I will say that like, because of the way that the switch works, you can maybe get away with it. If it's like really maybe. fine and precise, but like, yeah, in general, maybe. in general, that's yeah, the other thing about switches. You can kind of do something for everything. Yeah. If you, if you, but that's going to take more of your time than you're willing to give it is to, to, to calibrate. Yeah, that if it's stuff, a right? Switch exclusive and you're trying to really impress Nintendo, maybe do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Definitely these things about these hardware things. Like if you have something for impulse triggers, let Xbox know. Yeah. Like <laughs> they will be happy to hear it. Yep. And they might help you out a little bit. Um, but uh, the things, I mean, basically uh, make it feel like every time you get hit, uh, that's, you know, in, in a shooting game, every yeah. time maybe like kick back on a gun. Um, you know, like a punch, like those, those just things that people expect yeah. your controller to shake a little bit. Um, if you are in a cut scene and like the whole, there's a bomb goes off in the facility, mm-hmm. um, or like, oh no, the ground is shaking and now you're rising into space. Like yeah. those are great ways to, you know, just like having a subwoofer. It's like it ad- adds a little bit more, it feels a little more real, right? right. Those are things you can script and, and work out. Mm-hmm. Um, but also you can do things for game design stuff. You can have cues and, and direction. So yeah. if you're going down different hallways, you can have different rumble cues 
to imply things to the player. You can build a language of, of, of vibration that the player can slowly catch on to. Yeah. The thing you can't do or shouldn't do is rely on it for core gameplay because it's an accessibility concern. Right. Um, uh, not just for people who you know uh, can't have rumble in their experience. They say they can't feel it or um, rumble is not something that that is appropriate for them is when, to manage the controller. Mm-hmm. Um, it's for people who um, like will not pick up on those cues because yeah. humans are different. And like, <laughs> it's not, it, these are ambiguous uh, um, in a certain sense. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not always easy for people to understand if you're trying to use it to solve puzzles. For yeah, example. Yeah. Oftentimes, a lot of games will like do rumble to like say search search for stuff on the ground. I think there's like a couple of moons in Super Mario Odyssey where the only way you can find the moon is. By using the rumble, mm-hmm. I mean, which is a neat way of using that feature. It's super Switch, cool, right? But like, not everybody can participate in that. Yeah, um, it, possibly for accessibility reasons, and also because, like, you know, like you said, everybody is different, and so they might not be, they might not be as sensitive to rumble that um, Nintendo was hoping for from people. Yeah, so they might not be able to like find that moon easily. Yeah, and there are people who just turn off rumble mm-hmm. in the setting just because one it's of annoying. them, one of them is my wife. Yeah, uh, she does not like rumble, and it's a Hilarious story. Why? So okay. <laughs> another back to the history of Rumble in video games. Um, when the um, there are patents on these systems, yeah, right. But uh, Sony um, uh, lost access to the license for uh, this sort of standard controller Rumble, or at least the type they were using in the PlayStation Two controller when they were developing the PlayStation Three. So they shipped without Rumble. Um, not everyone remembers this, but okay. it, and and they called it the six-axis controller. Oh yeah, it, it wasn't a dual shock; it was the six-axis controller. Yeah. And one of the things they man they spun so hard. I, I remember these interviews. They were saying like, "Oh yeah, yeah, Rumble is a last generation feature. Uh, we don't need that anymore. We have motion controls now. Yeah, we you know we have the, the tilt sensors and like uh, one of the reasons why they maybe added the motion controls on the PS3 controller. I think in large part to compete with the upcoming Wii. That was people really. That was the story that people felt was true. Yeah. But part of it might have been also <laughs> that they were losing a, a headline feature, and they were maybe they were also considering it for that reason. But they might have helped them make that decision because they needed yeah. something. They needed something to so it didn't feel like a step back. I do remember that now because I remember that game uh, that coming out, and I remember their excuse was because it has motion controls. You can't have Rumble because it'll mess with the motion controls, right? Or something. Which is funny because the first version of the PlayStation Three controller mm-hmm. had semi-translucent pla- a plastic shell. Yeah, it was black, but you can kind of see through it. It's kind of neat, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like a you know it wasn't like a play it loud Nintendo controller, but yeah. it was it you could hold it up to the light and it would shine through. Yeah, and you could see these big empty cavities in the handles. Still <laughs> <laughs> so, like. There was room for those motors. Mm-hmm. And of course, within, I think, a year, it wasn't that long, yeah. they released the DualShock 3. Yeah. And the funny thing about it is that uh, my PS3 uh, was one of the launch ones. Right. And it had that controller. And that's how Dale learned how to uh, use those controllers when she played Portal 2. Oh. And that became her controller. Yeah. was oh. the one because she didn't like Rumble. Okay. And so uh, if if I think if she had started playing those games... With a DualShock Three, yeah. she might not. She might have just been fine with it. Uh-huh. But because she sort of got attached to that, now she just turns it off in every game she plays. Oh. And I, I think it's, uh, I think it's ridiculous. That's fascinating. But like, it's that's just the way she plays. She just yeah. turns it off if she's able to. Mm-hmm. And so, when we got a PlayStation Four, she was like, "Does one come without Rumble?" I'm like, "No, you can turn it off if you want to." She's like, "Does one come without it?" <laughs> <laughs> like, like, no, no, no. And then I explain. I started explaining the story, and she's yeah. like, "Boring." <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, so yeah, there, and you know, so 
as weird a reason as that is mm-hmm. for a person to not have rumble, yeah. those people exist. Yeah. Right. Um, and there, that's a weird reason in spite of, you know, my wife being the smartest person I know. So like, <laughs> it's, you know, you're not going to be able to know why and you can't count those people out. Right. You can't be like, well, if they don't do it, then like, they're not playing my game. Right. right. Like that's not true. Like, mm-hmm. so you got to account for those. Yeah. Those yeah, things. totally. Yeah. Which is like, especially if you come with like a cool idea to use rumble, mm-hmm. it can be kind of disheartening. Yeah. But like just with like things like, um, uh, doing things for colorblindness, like if you are able to not just turn rumble off, but like have a mode where if your gameplay depends on it or relies on it or uses it in an interesting way, they consider having a mode which does something else in its place. Yeah. And maybe that's not as good of a design from your perspective, but if it's available to people, they will appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to ruin it for people who don't want to turn that feature on. Yeah. Right. Well, also on the flip side, rumble could be used for, um, for accessibility. For example, like if you're, uh, have trouble seeing mm-hmm. um but like you have rumble when an enemy is coming at you or whatever um it would help players that way too yeah, so you can really use it point. you can flip it back the other way too yeah. yeah we always talk about accessibility concerns in terms of things that people are unable to experience but i think we it would help us to think of it in the way you're describing which is to use alternate ways to improve the experience mm-hmm. right and then that can bleed over to normal uses but you're right like um, I think we talked about with Jajeev a couple yeah. weeks ago about different UI elements combining and having this sort of like um, 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 uh, redundant redundant. Yes, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> having these redundant features yeah. that provide a richer and more uh, guaranteed experience to what you're doing. Um, and so that totally makes sense. Yeah, uh, for for using Rumble for that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it, I think all of these things. It's really important to when you're testing it. You kind of have to think outside yourself a little bit. You have to kind of imagine, you know, try doing it with a lighter grip on the controller. Try doing it with a really tight grip on the controller. Try doing it with the controller just in one hand, Mm -hmm. right? Like, even if that's not a a use case you're expecting, like, that that can somewhat emulate a a use case for someone who has a different control setup. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of considerations. And, you know, don't drive yourself crazy and keep in scope, but, like, it's helpful to at least know that those are possibilities. Yeah. And if you can't account for all of them, at least know that you can't. I think that's a very good point too, because like you can use rumble as a method to help emphasize a point. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, when you get hit, it's very important that player knows that they've taken damage. So we add a lot of visuals to the thing. Maybe we'll add like some freeze frame that you've gotten hit, you know, your health bar will go down and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things happening. The rumble also will help with that to help signify that. And a lot of times, yeah. You can make it like a stronger rumble so that players will know, oh, dang, something happened. Oh, I got hit. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, like any piece of your design or your aesthetics, it, it just adds, like, you know, it just adds, right? Adds yeah. to it. So if you can find a way for that to work and not overuse it yes. <laughs> and make it annoying, yes. um, then you'll be in good shape. Mm-hmm. Totally. Can you believe it? This week's episode of Nice Games Club is sponsored by Codex, the project management tool for game developers made by game developers. It's made by the same team behind the highly rated Curious Expedition. If you've used project management tools in the past, you know that learning a new one can be kind of annoying. I hate those. Oh, I kind of like them. Okay, well, either way, uh, Codex is different. It has a playful, approachable design inspired by trading card games. It uses familiar metaphors like decks and hands so you can quickly organize your tasks, adjust your workflow, assign priority, or whatever else you need to do to manage your total mess of a project. Hey, be nice. Codex also has Discord integration, which no other tool of its kind has. Collect feedback, ideas, and bug reports from your community, which you can then lovingly implement or callously ignore as you please. 
Codex scales to any project, so it's perfect whether you're working alone or with a team of any size. Sign up for free at codex.io slash nicegamesclub and get a special introductory offer. I'm going to spell it out for you. C-O-D-E-C-K-S dot I-O slash nicegamesclub. Be sure to use that address so we get the credit and also because we like these people and we want to stay friends with them. Martha? That's codex.io slash nicegamesclub. Transition time. (laughs) So remember before when we were talking about civilization? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that... Yes, and Mark, you should say yes, and. (laughs) Yes, and. (laughs) (sighs) Um, I work so hard on these, guys. (laughs) We know. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. In different places, I played Civilization different ways. Oh, Civilization, I remember. Anyway, I want us to talk about video game installations and video games in places. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, oh, which, I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because the context of where you play a game is uh-huh. important. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we're joking around, but that's a really good way to describe it in places. Yeah. Right. As like a broad way to describe what you're going to talk, talk yeah, about. Yeah. Because yeah, we, um, when we were writing up, notes for this topic we realized we steven was like um this seems real familiar (laughs) yeah and i looked in our giant archive because we have over 100 we almost have 150 episodes y'all did y'all just i just realized that Mm -hmm. um we're a few away we might we might have actually reached that because i don't know if all these are numbered anyways we had a topic like 100 episodes ago about video game installations because mark had done um an installation for um the orchestra hall here in minnesota Mm -hmm. um then we talked about that. So I was like, this all looks kind of the same. <laughs> so Martha but, was desperate to come up with a new angle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I thought like really what I wanted to talk more about is like games in places or like in, if you're in the zoo or conservation world in C2 mm-hmm. in the situation that the, like in the context. Ah, okay. Um, an in situ animal is an animal that's in its environment and not in a zoo where it's, XC2. Ah. Now you know. Mm. <laughs> um, anyway, I work at a cool place. That's why I know these vocab words. Anyway, so like, um, so like, for ex- I was kind of inspired by uh, a local game that happened um, that your brother, Stephen's brother Charles, worked on yes. um, at the Minnesota Institute of Art um, that kind of integrated the museum into the game. And the art in the museum into the game, and you had to look for clues in the different art pieces. And it made like my mom went and played it. I didn't get a chance to, which I feel so bad about. Yeah, and I'm such a bummer because it sounds so fun. I also didn't get a chance to play it. Steven. Don't tell my brother. Uh, <laughs> I did play like a knockoff version of it because uh, they had this like party uh, thing. Um, but like part of the 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 art museum was like down for renovations and that was the part that was core to the game uh, <laughs> so they had to real quick rush something out so i played like a knockoff version of it and that's so funny it's really telling like the 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 place is so important to the design of it. yeah oh yeah yeah 
So that was called uh, Riddle Mia This, right? Yes, the that's M-I-A right. is the as a fun pun name. I'm sure you got a kick out of it. That's so <laughs> um, cool. <laughs> so there were some articles talking about it. Yeah. My mom said that she loved it a lot because it made her notice. Like we go to the MIA a lot, me and my mom, to draw different, like we, we go with our sketchbooks and draw uh, inspired by the art we see. And she said that she saw pieces of art that she, that have always been there, but she just never noticed. But because of the, they were in the game and she had to look for clues in the game, um, she noticed them for the first time. And we're like, oh, wow, this piece of art is actually really cool. Um, so yeah. And yeah, it's so cool that it was so tied to the place that the place being closed meant the game didn't work. Right. I think that idea is so interesting and cool. And that's kind of what I want to talk about how to do that. We talked a little bit about physical games in a previous episode also. Mm -hmm. And some of the games I talked about then were games that were made in that place and you can't really play them outside of the place. And whenever you come back to the place, you should play the game. Uh, like, uh, we had a game called Skadoons, me and my friend Emily. And uh, it all relied on their staircase, ah. <laughs> um, the way it was laid out in their house. Right, and right. that you could get on both sides of the staircase and bop balloons back and forth. And we had all this, like these rhymes that went with the different ways the balloon went. Uh and then Ruby Ball, which is what we played when I was a kid. Uh, it's like baseball, but we played it with a wiffle ball. And we would hit the ball, and then my dog Ruby would go and fetch it. And you had the amount of time it took to run around the bases for her. For uh, amount of time it took for her to grab the ball and bring it back to run around the bases. Ah, okay. That's cool. So you can, can't really play it without Ruby. Yeah. So that game is forever gone now. Oh. <laughs> but... Um, and that's kind of like the, the thing about these place games is because they're so tied to places, they're kind of time locked too, because yeah, like we think about the physical space of things as permanent. And that's why like when you're like have a university or something, you can get funding for a new building, no problem. Yeah. Because people think it's like a legacy, like they get to pay for the thing and it's a stone and it never moves and never changes. Right. But really, like the physical landscape around us is changing all the time, and buildings change on the inside all There's the time. So many apartments, <laughs> <laughs> right? They won't stop. <laughs> so, like these games will disappear when the place disappears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, or it'll be adapted. So think of like staging a play. Like okay. you have a different production of the play in another theater. And so, presumably, games could work like that too. Like, imagine a lot, you know, uh, a, a codex of games, like, like you know, like a Shakespeare folio, yeah. that has the essentially the rules, but then is free to be interpreted by a director in a new place. Oh my gosh, like, that's so cool! I think there are probably more moving parts, and there's no language for us to describe these things. But like, imagine a future where you had things you could pull, you could license, you know, if it was a commercial work. Um, or if it was in, in the public domain, you could just, you know, get access to and then stage it, right? Huh. Like, you know, s- stage it in the the back alley of your neighborhood or yeah. stage it at the local community center or yeah. something and then use that space and use and, and then invent new things around it. Like, I don't know why. I mean, it's not, not a radical idea. I don't know why that hasn't been done so much before. 
a lot of times, if it's a game you have made and you you take it around to different conventions, you will do a little bit of that process as a, anyway. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of times is because these are not generally they're generally uh, grant funded if funded at all, and so they tend to be impermanent, like you described, uh, because no one really thinks about giving it a further life. Well, I, I imagine that like. The space. I think we're we're doing a little bit of that sort of stuff already. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that, like in the previous episode, we talked about was it Johann Sebastian Joust? Yeah. Uh, well, imagine if you were playing that game, but like you couldn't move this table that was in the center of the room. Right. That would change the game quite a bit. Like mm-hmm. you'd have to manipulate. You have to move around that table. Yeah. And so it would change a bunch of things. Um. So like there are. I think there are some games that are explicitly sort of designed for whatever space they're in. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, but like the I think that like the way you were describing it sounds more like like you literally designed a game that can be literally amorphous in that like it is very specific about what space it needs to be in. And so I'm I'm kind of imagining almost more like a like you know one of those plays you have to participate in you know like to say hey give us a thing and then be like I don't know you mean improv that's more like (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm imagining improv but like more like everybody's actually participating in it as a game sort of thing Mm -hmm. Um, the way you were describing it anyways that's the impression I got and that sounded like a really fascinating idea yeah I guess I'm just trying to be as broad or generalized so think of like a play that you see on a stage versus a play you see in the round yeah like it's going to be different. The blocking is going to be different, but the script is going to be the same. Yeah. And so why can't games work that way as well, where like a part of the game uses light projection on this big wall in this theater space. It's so perfect for it. Mm-hmm. But now we're doing it in this other space where the ceilings are so low that we can't do it that way. Okay, well, we're going to put it on the floor now. And then that has gameplay implications. Yeah. So we change the rules a little bit so that that works. Like yeah. it could still be the same game, right? It could still, it could still refer back to its, the founding document and be correct. I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, sure. But like, that sounds really cool. I mm-hmm. think so. That all reminds me of um, the children's theater. One year did a version of Romeo and Juliet, where instead of in the round, you were literally on this, like they built the streets of Verona or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this huge like wraparound set. And then you were people just walking around. And then the play <laughs> happened in <laughs> around you like huh. people yeah. walking by would just suddenly be like why art thou <laughs> <laughs> wow okay yeah that was super cool mm-hmm. and that like now we're getting real f- philosophical but plays kind of are like games like mm-hmm. they have rules and roles and things like that mm-hmm. yeah. like turn off your cell phones <laughs> <laughs> Well, like the. I mean, rule, that's not what you meant, but <laughs> like the way to play the game is to sit and watch it. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But you or know, it, it has a language of like how it's presented. You know, you you act on stage to to the the cheap seats. Like the it has a, it all those things are defined, and then depending on where the place is, or let's say maybe you have a, a PA system and all the actors are mic'd. Well, now the performances are, are different, or mm-hmm. can be different. Um, so yeah, you're right. It it, it does. It, they 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 have de- design constraints and rules. One thing, like one thing that is one genre of games that we've also talked about on the show before with one of our nice guests, uh, our nice guest art, mm-hmm. uh, was all about escape rooms, which is basically kind of like a play, except mm-hmm. you are you become the actors in the play trying yeah. to figure out the puzzle. That's that's a good example of something you're talking. Yeah, about. Um, art actually has described how um, um, his business, Riddle Room 
has uh, taken a, a puzzle that he's created and moved it to different spaces in the in it as as other things as just as time goes gone on, right? Mm-hmm. And then they need to modify it a little bit, and the room is larger, so it can accommodate more people, which means they can have a more complicated puzzle or you know stuff like that. And so um, that might be the closest thing to what I'm describing. Yeah, um, not quite the same as you know, but you know, even riddle room concepts or a puzzle room concepts are uh, are licensable, yeah. right? A lot of times they will. Uh, make it available to purchase so some other business can run it. Okay. So that's actually close. Yeah. Hmm. That's- and they're very much tied to place. Like the, the yeah. whole thing is about spaces and, and, and volume, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know there's that, that local, um, locally developed thing called Donutron that we mm-hmm. have that uh, is, I guess, is like it has a bunch of locally made games and like a little, like a little arcade machine. Um, but it's like, donut themed i don't think any of the games are donut themed <laughs> no but like the donut tron itself is donut themed and it, right, just it has its own personality yeah and identity yeah and it would be weird to have that in a place that wasn't glammed all donuts it'd be <laughs> weird to have that here actually it'd be weird to have that at glitch because like yeah. you don't sell donuts <laughs> um, um although <laughs> <laughs> unless <laughs> um and so like it is the thing that is ex- like was designed explicitly for the purpose of that venue I don't think it's the exact same thing because, like, it's our um, outside theming yeah. matches the venue. Well, I mean, it's a it's an illustration of how this idea can be done small. Yeah, it can be like there are local games on there. There's they weren't intended to be played publicly or on an arcade machine. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that space with that identity and that little machine, it that is interesting. Yeah, it's, it can be contextualized. Yeah, and now that I think about it, and an example of that that it fits in a different kind of space. Is the Mega Mini Multi Indie Mini Arcade because it's kind of, it's very similar to the Donut Tron in that like there are a bunch of in- locally made indie games here. Yeah, but um, it's specifically designed so that like people who aren't as familiar with games but are like interested in like the business aspect of it can see a bunch of different games really quickly. Right. So that's like um like if you show off a game at a convention or something like we've done, you have your own booth runs your game right but what you're describing the many words i'm not going to say <laughs> okay um, <laughs> that is many stations that all have all the games yeah and that's at the mini bar every year yes. uh, which is a convention here it's a sort of a um, tech meets small business um uh, kind of one day uh conference and that's been going on a couple of years uh the, the, that arcade setup right and you're right it is different and has a different character and it's explicitly designed like it has uh ian who um uh, builds it every year uh he asks all of the developers to send you send trailers of the game because like they sh- it also shows like a preview of the game yeah. whereas i believe the donut tron does not do that i think it just has a bunch of games on it that you mm-hmm. can just play um so like it's explicitly designed for people to like to draw people in uh as opposed to the donut tron which is more like an insulation of the space um, yes yeah. yeah that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the the um multi-mini indie arcade is always kind of in the place where people walk by. Like it was yeah. designed to be in the middle of a lot of stuff happening at once. And so that makes a lot of sense. It was kind of, it was designed for its place also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess all my notes are for the old version of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, as, uh, as a result of that, you can use that information and maybe use that for uh, showing your game off at whatever space you're going to. So, like, you might, if you're showing your game off at GDC, you might uh, tailor your demo space differently than if you were to show your game off at PAX, for example. Right. Like, are you um, are you trying to make connections with other developers so you can work together on a future project? Right. In which case, you're demoing your game for that purpose. 
or if you're at PAX and you're trying to sell some games. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's as a different, uh, you, you can, you know, sometimes there are just blank spaces you fill. Mm-hmm. But like, contextually, they're very different in yeah. terms of like what type of event it is or what type, you know, or if it's at a, a, a semi-permanent space like the Donatron. Right. Like it has a different, or if it's a, a place you're going to be to present versus a place where it needs to run on its own. Yeah. Um, or a third party is going to present and where you are not. Like, all, a lot of considerations. And that that's just for just regular games. Yeah. Right? That's not even designing your game for those spaces. Right. And there's still a ton of considerations. Right? Yeah. That's I, a good point. I can't even imagine. Like, now, I, I, now I'm thinking about that. Like, if we were to make it, if we were to make a game in the clubhouse for the clubhouse. Yeah. Well, how would we go about doing that? This, this clubhouse is... I don't know that we've ever like described it. So it's, it's true. A, it's a triangle shaped room yeah. made out of brick yes. and filled with love. <laughs> and, um, and it has one glass wall mm-hmm. that is um, that it shares with the rest of the space here at Glitch. Yeah. And so we're the, it's the end of the Glitch space. Yeah. And then on the other wall is a, is a number of windows that, that uh, go out onto Riverside Avenue. Yeah. Um, All very bouncy surfaces. So. Yes. <laughs> Not great for recording audio. Right. We've, we've learned. Um, but we figured it out. Yeah. Uh, we have a big uh, wall-to-wall whiteboard mm-hmm. on one of the walls. Um, we have LED lighting um, or fluorescent style lighting. So it's very cool uh, lighting in here. Yeah. We have a couple of plants. We have a blow-up um, uh, Portal 2 drone. Um, and we've got a big table in the middle where we yes. record the show. It's and, also and have, a whiteboard table so we can draw on it. Right. And then th- this room is normally used for as a conference space and it's really useful for that. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we use it as our clubhouse. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the, the, the summary. The so, lay of the land, uh, yes. so what, what would we make here? Uh, man, I really want to use something with the, the glass wall. Yeah. I feel like it's easy to like draw little notes and stuff on the whiteboards we have, mm-hmm. but like the glass wall. Oh, oh, Martha's got an idea. Okay. So yep, yep. with a glass wall, uh-huh. yeah. this is a conference room. Yes. Okay. So players are outside. Uh-huh. There are like, inside outside dynamic. Yeah. Okay. And there are uh, NPCs, we shall call them inside. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and trained improv actors. Yes. <laughs> and they are having some, like there's some sort of scene, like some sort of meeting that's happening or something. And then they have to figure out clues if I'm outside. I don't know how, what, any, that's just the idea oh, that dang. I like yeah. that as a genre yeah like staging a tableau that and you can even have the actors uh, mouth their lines like not actually speak yeah and yes. um, so you have the players outside and they would have some sort of way to interact right either writing on the walls in in, in, in um, a dry erase marker mm-hmm. um, or some sort of you know buttons that were something you <gasps> build and then the people inside would be doing their scene and then the players outside could change either what happens in the scene like you know, maybe they're like scientists in a nuclear reactor and they're trying to figure out how to solve a thing. The players could either assist with that or it could be a matter of the players just trying to deduce what's happening in the scene. And if they do something right, then the the actors then are aware of it and then they start talking for real as if you turned on the speakers or something. Uh-huh. Like you could oh, yeah. you make it as a solving a mystery where the play, the play in the room plays out. It's black box theater, right? Yeah. Um, it could just play out normally, but then how the audience perceives it changes based on their, their attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could just have puzzles on the, on the windows that you could have to connect dots that are drawn on both sides of the window. Like yeah. I'm really excited about this, <laughs> <laughs> but like dressing up this space as if it were another space mm-hmm. and using it. And then having that, that wall, to wall window is really exciting as you described. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, it could be, it could be that you're, you're like, 
uh, there's one person on the inside who knows you're there and you're trying to like get, get them information and they're trying to like give you clues or something, but without, how would that work? I don't know. Maybe not. That well, communication is interesting, right? So you'd have the, the, the performer inside, maybe they like, they act as though they can't hear you or can't hear you and can't see you. Mm -hmm. And then you need to do something to let them see you or hear you either by like tapping out a particular code and that you would determine by deducing things that are written on the walls in here or manipulating things that would like turn on an intercom system yeah. or something like what that. What if it was like a one-way mirror sort of situation? The way you were describing it made me yeah, remind yeah. me of a one-way mirror. Oh, Which yeah. You could, do, you could do it, yeah, just even could even make it like a police interrogation yeah. kind of set up or a, a, a lineup or things that were a glass wall is 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 familiar. You could even do like a Hannibal Lecter cell kind of scenario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did do that. Wow, there's a lot of options for this thing. Yeah, this is really cool. And what makes it different from, you know, you could have digital components or interactive elements, right? But the what ties it to a place would be the use of a live actor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And like actually, well, the area we're in has a lot of theaters around it. Yeah. So like we could find actors and like we can maybe uh, I mean, this is getting way in well, <laughs> this is a huge scope sort of thing. So we, the, we're in the but, theater district in Minneapolis. Right. There are a lot of theaters, and every year there's a Fringe Fest oh, that yeah. puts on many small plays, yeah. and occasionally they do special engagements at other uh, locations in the area. That's so cool. that's a thought. Okay, that's a fascinating concept. <laughs> uh, it would be neat to like... Jot that down on a post-it. Right? <laughs> it would be neat to be like work with local actors um, and get them to like you know pre- perform here uh, in in that way that we yeah. were talking about. Well, and those, I mean, the, if you had performance, they become a real big part of the artistry of the thing. They become, yeah. you can't just give them a script and a bunch of branching dialogue trees. Like right. they would have to be, uh, have a lot of say in what the, what it is yeah. uh, for them to be able to actually engage with it properly. Okay. okay. So if they were like really had, you know, yeah, like everything down pat mm-hmm. and their characters and what they say yeah you could do like you know in um games where you can like rewind time like like scrub through a oh sure yeah but you could do that in real life so you could be like walking around with the people in here and then be like pause rewind that's interesting start oh and like get clues notice something new the second time around or maybe something's a little different this time around Okay. Ooh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Like in a puzzle room, a lot of times you're like, I'm going to work on this. You work on that. Let's stay in communication. Yeah. Right. And that's a big part of being a successful puzzle room team. Right. Also like a very irritating one if you're just there to just goof off. <laughs> <laughs> but like a, something like that would work similarly. Like you need to pay attention to what the actor is doing here because there's so much else going on that we haven't been able to do that. So you yeah. need to ignore all the interesting stuff and focus on that. Yeah. And like, and then, huh. then you can run it as many times as you need to. Right. Like yeah. if it's a rewind mechanic. Wow, yeah, that's cool. Oh, <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe. Yeah. That would, yeah, that would be really cool. I like this idea a lot. Let's do it. Well, this has been a really fun exercise. <laughs> yes, yes. But, uh, and I don't mind continuing, but I, I, I think listeners should, should, should do something like this. Think about either the space you're in or mm. just even as a thought exercise, if not yeah. necessarily a, a game jam thing, although that's a great idea. Mm. And um, uh, get your mind turning about how you would use a space. And then those ideas, you could then move to some other uh, thing. You could adapt those for a digital game or whatever. But it, um, it's a kind of brainstorming that's sort of interesting that we, yeah. that we haven't really done before. Yeah. yeah. We could maybe uh, do a whole nice games jam episode on it. Too. Yeah, that's a good idea. Before we flush these ideas out more. Mm-hmm. 
that's our show. If you haven't already, subscribe to Nice Games Club in your favorite podcast app and be sure to give it a good review if you like or are nice like us. We really do need to know you're out there, so leave a review and tell all your friends to. We also want to hear directly from you, so follow us on Twitter and all the other things at Nice Games Club where you can hear from Dale, who uh, is doing a good job on the Twitter. <laughs> She's doing great. Um, and you can also email us at contact at nicegames.club. Lastly, you can find out more about the show and your nice hosts, as well as get all of the links and show notes from this and other episodes at nicegames.club. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. yet and you know everything's happy-go-lucky as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming i wish i had used indeed if you need to hire you need indeed Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.